Hello everyone, it's Sandy Ruxton here with a new episode of the Now and Men podcast about men, masculinities and gender equality. Today we're talking to Jens van Tricht, who founded and runs an organisation called Emancipator, based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Yes, hi everyone, it's Stephen Burrell here. So Jens describes himself as an idealist, anarchist and feminist, and he's the author of an inspiring book called Why Feminism is Good for Men, which we'll be discussing with him today. The book offers a new and hopeful perspective on men and masculinities, and shows how men can contribute to a better world. Now Jens is also a highly skilled trainer, coach and facilitator and full disclosure I've worked with and alongside Jens for many years including setting up the European section of the Global Men Men Engage Alliance and running training events in Egypt and Turkey so I'm really delighted that he's talking to us today. Yes welcome to Now Men Jens. Yeah thank you both very much I'm really happy to be here finally. (laughs) Well thank you so much for joining us yeah. So we mentioned in the introduction that you've written a book called Why Is Feminism Good For Men? Um, So I suppose to start off with, um, could you tell us a bit more about what led you to write the book? And I suppose, you know, perhaps it's a bit of an obvious question, but why do you think feminism is good for men? So let's start uh, with that last question. That's the the easy answer is, (laughs) it's not easy, but it's a short answer. Um, Feminism is good for men because it liberates the femininity in men, because it allows men to be more human. Uh, A bit longer answer, as in my book, is that feminism is good for men because it will improve their relations, our relations with ourselves, with other men, with children, with women, with our partners and with the world at large. So there's many things to say to that. Um, Yeah, and why did I write the book? I think I wrote the book, it's a cliche to say it had to be written. Uh, It was a logical phase in what I was doing. Um, I, um, but also I think I wanted to write the book that I was, would, would have liked to have when I started off with these issues. Yeah, and that's, that's quite a long time ago. In, in, in 1990, I had my encounter with feminism that opened my eyes and that changed my life. And I embraced it and, and I never let go. And... From then on, I've been looking for resources that could help me learn and improve and and grow and develop. Uh, And and I found many things. There were academic things written. There were things in magazines. There were activist attempts. There were, uh, you could say, leftovers. That sounds disrespectful, but... uh, I mean, there had been many people, many men before me doing stuff around men and gender equality, violence prevention, uh, emancipation, as we call it in the Netherlands, already from the 60s, 70s, 80s in the, in the former century. Uh, so I found a lot of resources and inspiration. Um, and at the same time, I felt alone and lonely in this. And there was not really... A place to go as a man wanting to be part of the struggle for gender equality. There were women's organizations and women's groups, but that was not the place for men. And some of the women's groups were exclusively female and said, yeah, you men have to do your own thing. But then where were the other men wanting to do this? 
Um, and there was, of course, a gay movement, uh, but not identifying or uh, as gay. I was connected, but also not feeling this is where I have to be. And so I was looking for resources and community. And I think uh, the so it's getting a long answer, but it's connected. Um, I started writing the book in the same period that I started the explorations that led to to founding Emancipator. It was at a moment in time where I had done several projects and where I felt we need something that brings it together. It shouldn't just be about violence or about fatherhood or about boys in education, but we need to transform masculinity. And I had found out about Men Engage and felt at home there. And I felt we need to create something like this in the Netherlands. And in that process, I started writing things and I felt, oh, maybe I'm, it will become a book. And I started talking with people and organizations. Maybe it will become an organization. And then we started 10 years ago with the organization. And there was a lot of work. And in the meantime, I've been uh, working on the book and received help from different people and, and organized help for myself and found a publisher. So then now five years ago, finally, the book was ready. And I feel they still belong very much together. And, and the book and the organization also contribute to creating the community that we need to make these changes in the world. And we should say that the book is written in Dutch, isn't it? But it's yes. just been translated into English. And so the, we're very lucky that actually this episode of the podcast marks the launch of the book in English. Um, so we yes. can, we'll put the link uh, to buy the book in the, in the show notes and uh, we encourage our listeners to do that. You said a little bit about your sort of journey you know, of what you called emancipation. But, I mean, in the, in the book, you, you uh, describe some very early sort of anecdotes um, in relation to your, your childhood and, you know, make links between the sort of personal and political. I mean, there's one about, you know, um, seeing your father kick a ball so high in the sky that you, you just can't see it, you know, and thinking about his power. And, and then there's one about your mother as well and her on a ladder and her nervousness at being on the ladder. Do you, do you want to just sort of explain those a little bit more and, and talk about why they, why they came into the book and why they're relevant to your journey? Yes, no, no, I'm happy to, uh, and, and it's actually interesting that after all these years, this is still an ongoing quest. So often I'm asking myself, but how come I, I got on this path and this path embraced me so much? And, and, and for many years I've been thinking, what is wrong with me or why am I the strange guy that, that, that has gone into all this? But in recent years I've actually started to change the question and I, I start to realize it's actually strange that not many more men actually go into this and I think really we should look at it like that. But of course I've been, I, so the moment I got to live with four women and one other man in a squatted house in Amsterdam in 1990 and that's where it started, that's where we had everyday discussions about feminism, about gender equality, about our socialization and that's where I was forced and invited to start thinking about where do I come from and what did I learn about masculinity and femininity. And that's where memories like these came up. Oh, yeah, but I learned to see my father. He was, I mean, my father was a, a, a kind and charming man. And at the same time, he was also emotionally distant and he could also, he had oppressed emotions that could explode. And 
this image is one of my first memories of him, I think, where we were on a, a, a I think you would call it a lot in English, a place where mm -hmm. our new house was going to be built. And we had a football and we were also with other friends. He, he had a male friend and it was football. And my father shot the ball, so I, I couldn't see it probably, it was just there, but I missed it with my, I think I was three or four years old, so, wow, my father can shoot the ball into the sky. I don't even remember the ball coming down, maybe, maybe it ended up somewhere, we never found it again, it's all possible, but it was my image of my father. And later on that same place, or maybe the same day, I don't know, but when the house was like being built, the first floor was ready and we climbed the ladder to go and have a look there. And I remember, and I'm not even sure if these memories are correct, it's my memories, but I remember my mother uh, being afraid to go down from the ladder. Uh, so my mother was vulnerable there and helpless. But at the same time, my mother was the one taking care of me all the time. And my mother was a working mother, which was very rare at that time uh, in the Netherlands. My mother is from Denmark and for her it was always normal to work but most mothers of the children that I played with or that were in my school year they had mothers at home uh, with a warm meal during lunch and we had like an, a, a babysitter or she had another working woman uh, that she was befriended with and they the, we as kids were either at one house or the other. And, and what happened actually when, when, when I got to think about all these things is that uh, I had a lot of, is the word revelations, a lot of insights about things that I, I had felt discomfort about in my life or that I hadn't understood. Because the, there is the, oh yeah, I realize now, because there were, uh, in the book I write about this image of my omnipotent father, but then later I did a, a sound liberation workshop with him and there he was completely powerless and he couldn't get his voice expressed and he was like the young, like the young boy that always had been told you cannot sing and he, so there he was powerless and these images and my mother, the other image was her powerlessness was there as a child but my mother is also the patriarch in our family, she's dominating what is happening, and I'm not sure, mom, if you like it to hear this, but uh, <laughs> she's a very powerful woman, uh, yeah. and she's very strong and powerful. So the, the images are much more diverse than what society actually tells me they can be or that we should mm. be. Mm. And yeah, there, is, there were these, there was, an, was another, I was thinking beforehand about... Uh, living towards this podcast, I think the, the moment I realized that I, I was different from girls as, as a child was that uh, actually the daughter of this friend of my mother um, and I, we used to go to school together. I would pick her up and we walked or cycled to school. And then one day, I really remember clearly, at the gate of the school, she didn't want to enter the schoolyard together with me anymore. And that had to do with the fact that I was a boy and apparently there had been strange things. Or I don't know, I, I, we've never talked about it. But there was a watershed moment where I felt, oh, but 
there is something here. Mm. And I didn't understand. And I think for many years, I didn't understand many things. They just happened to me. Mm. And being forced and invited to start thinking about my own socialization, my life, the world from a feminist perspective, it was revealing, it was liberating, it was also connecting me with the realities I'd been living in and that I often hadn't understood so well. Another example was my activist comrades. We were activists, we were fighting against all the injustice in the world on barricades and demonstrations and and I mean, we spent a lot of time together. We would do anything for each other in the struggle. But if we felt emotionally vulnerable or insecure, we didn't know how to deal with that with each other. So we had to recur to women for their emotional labor. Mm. I was used to talking about my emotions, but not with other men. Mm. Uh, or at least I had learned that this was not easy and this would call for discomfort and uneasiness. and and strange reaction. So, I don't know, it felt like a jackpot of insights when I started to explore these things. And I want to share those with others because I didn't want to be alone, but also felt as an activist, now we need to change the world with these new insights. Mm -hmm. So I was like the converted yeah. one. I lost all my comrades in that because I was telling now this is the struggle we have to go in. Yeah, because yeah. you, you, know, you jumped quite a long way from your, your young childhood into being an activist. Yeah, sorry. And I just wondered yeah. what came in between, because as I understand it from the book, you know, when you were a teenager, you were quite unhappy, depressed. Yes. You know, I, you found an outlet in punk music. You yes. were later involved in the Dutch squatter movement, which is, I think, what you've been describing. Yes. I, I just wondered if you wanted to say a bit more about, you know, these sort of, I don't know how to say, survival mechanisms, coping strategies, and how you found your sort of positive way forward. I think you were beginning to talk about that anyway. Yeah, thank you for asking, uh, um, because I think it's, it's good to share. I mean, I grew up in a very or relatively privileged, safe environment, um, wealthy enough to live in a standalone house and to go on holidays and but there was always more rich people around us so we would have second-hand cars and not and go to campings instead of hotels and not fly to holiday destinations and we wouldn't get like brand clothes but I was but like the cheap ones and so I felt relatively poor in a relatively rich environment um, and I learned that I, th I think my parents were were optimistic, leftish, uh, intellectual people. I'm not sure how they would describe themselves. <laughs> um, so I learned to live with a kind of optimistic view about the world and you just do your own thing. But then in my teenage years, I found out that actually the world was different. I ran into the hypocrisy and the negativity in the world. I learned to see what injustices there were in terms of poverty and discrimination and war. And I mean, it was the 80s, it was the Cold War. There was youth unemployment. There was like the resurging of, of extreme right that, that we see now uh, have become so big, but it, it really was all there. Uh, environmental issues were there. So we had a song in Dutch, a very popular song by a Dutch band, saying, oh, just just drop the bomb because it will happen anyway. <laughs> this was like the feeling I grew up with in, in those 
years. And so I, I, I became depressed first. I, I started to wear black clothes, listen to Cure and Joy Division music and uh, started smoking pots and drinking alcohol and, and felt like, okay, so life doesn't really make sense. We're all going to end anyway, etc. And then I kind of radicalized into punk music because uh, fuck the system and, and uh, uh, anger was actually an interesting energy to tap into because it felt like I can do something against it at least, even though maybe I cannot change it, but at least uh, yeah, there's another expression in, in Dutch, uh, destroy what destroys you. Well, all these words destroy, fuck the system, you know, it was all there. Um, so that energy made me kind of alive, but also even more self-destructive. Um, there would be more alcohol and drugs. And, and it was a negative, nihilistic way of being in the beginning. But through punk music, there was also very political punk music, Dead Kennedys, for example, which has been very transformative for me. And, oh, but I can also contribute to a change. So through, through punk music, I also politicized. And I got in contact with other people listening to punk music and going to punk concerts who would also be involved in youth movements for social justice and go to demonstrations and do squatting of houses. And then I felt, oh, wow, so I can use my anger and my energy. Actually, then I think I learned that the flip side of the coin of my depression and anger has always been hope and idealism. Uh, or, and, 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 and it's interesting that I feel we're all able to tap into that. If you have the negative feelings, they're always also an expression of the want, the utopianism, the, the, the wish to create something better. So that's what, 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 what I dove into, I think, head first. Um, and still, I believe the magic of squatting was amazing, opening empty spaces, deserted, abandoned spaces, and starting to create something new there, anything you'd like, and trying to do that in new ways, transforming ourselves and, and, and the ways we live and love and work and struggle together, while at the same time protesting the big injustices in the world. This is also where the personal and the political became very strongly connected, even before it was mentioned like that. Well, and then in that environment, there was feminism, of course. Also, there were women's groups. There was women talking about their experiences with violence and male dominance and rape and sexualized violence and incest. And, and at first, I could still think I could still think these are incidents and they don't happen here, but they happen in the world. And it's good that we have a place where we can talk about these things. But then, <clears throat> of course, it became clear that this leftist radical squatters movement was also just a part of a society with deeply ingrained sexism and internalized sexism and, and power structures. So male dominance and sexism and abuse and rape also happened in our own circles. And then I found that instead of taking the challenge seriously to, to change our structures and the way we were living together, uh, there was actually very frustrating and, and unconstructive 
discussions happening and, and, and events evolving that then later made me decide to, to study women's studies. This is the next step. And, and one of the first things I did was do a research about how these discussions about sexism actually had been done in the squatters movement. So these, these were my teenage years until the 20s, so something like that, yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, could you, could you perhaps talk a little bit about, about that? Because you talk about how in the book you, you did, like studying women's studies was a big part of how you kind of came into contact with feminism. Um, so yeah, what was it that led you to choose to study that? And, and how was it for you as a man to kind of participate in that course? I mean, in the book, you describe it as a kind of feast of recognition. Um, yeah, do you want to talk a bit more? Yeah, about yeah, that? yeah, yeah. So I, I, I mentioned already that as a converted trying to convert also my comrades I think I wasn't easy and my life didn't get easy in in that radical movement so I came to a point where I felt I need to learn more and I want to I want myself to grow but also I think we as a movement should learn to to do something about this and then, I don't know how it happened, I had read somewhere in one of our uh, uh, activist magazines about women's studies existing. I think some women's studies teacher or professor had been doing a talk somewhere and I had read that. And I thought, okay, let's go and have a look. Um, and I came there and I was very cordially invited, welcomed by Saskia Poldervaart. Um, I want to name her, she passed away already 10 years ago with more. She was my mentor for many years. She was specialized in social movements and women's studies. They had just around that time organized an event, where are the men in women's studies? There had started a conversation about should women's studies become gender studies or at least it had become clear that women's studies was not about women anymore, just alone, but it was about what they then called in, in Dutch, but I could, I think maybe you can say it like that in English as well, the working of sex, which then uh, would later translate into how gender works, but how biological sex was worked upon by society and how it worked into creating society. So then they realized, oh, but we need also to work with the other side, with men. Well, ta-da, there I was. I wasn't the first <laughs> man. There were other men uh, had been doing women's studies. and But I felt like I'm welcome. And I had the connection with the social movements with her. Um, so I felt, yeah, and this is what I want to learn. And men's studies didn't exist. There had been men's studies courses also in the, in, in the f last century sometimes. And things had happened but it wasn't there at the moment. And I decided to study women's studies and to specialize in men and masculinities. And it's been an interesting process to read between the lines because everything that talks explicitly about women, girls and femininity, again, if you flip the coin, it is talking about boys and men and masculinity as well. So yeah, that's what I did. I, I and it wasn't one course I did like it was before we had a bachelor master structure introduced um, so I had to do one year 
ground study of politicology or sociology or any of the social sciences, but I did uh, political sciences. And then I could do three full years of whatever courses I wanted to choose from the women's studies departments in the different faculties. So I made my own, uh, own study program, um, yeah, learning from many different angles about the history of the feminist movement, about gender and ethnicity, uh, about uh, uh, care, labor, poverty, about violence, about LGBT issues, about sexuality. Um, yeah, it was like, I think I was so eager, I, 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 uh, I wanted to know everything. I, I was like a sponge. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm still very grateful that I could do that. And I felt so welcomed. Uh, I, I had expected, also coming from, from a place where uh, sometimes there would be women-only uh, circles or groups or meetings, and I would have expected and I would have also accepted and agreed that maybe in some courses women would have wanted to be on their own and not have any men included mm. because of the topics they were dealing with or the personal issues. But I've never encountered anything like that. I was welcomed and included and I've had well, one of the best times of my life. So also the study was meant to last four years, but then other things happened and I had a personal crisis and I went traveling and I got a job. And so altogether it took me more than 10 years from the first day I came in to the last day when I f finished the study. And it's been wonderful, yeah. And in your book, you talk about the need for men's liberation. Um, and in yeah. fact, yeah, the organization that you founded is called Emancipator. Um, so yeah, what, what, what do you mean by that when you talk about liberation for men? Yeah, yeah these are interesting uh, steps that happen with the words. In the Netherlands, policy for gender equality has actually always been called women's emancipation. So this is the word that is being used regularly that everyone understands. And even though slowly now the talk about gender equality is m becoming more common, but still, emancipation is the word we use. So there had been, also before I started with this, initiatives called men's emancipation. And we, we took on this phrase to make clear that women's emancipation and men's emancipation go hand in hand. They need each other. Um, so that's the word we use in the Netherlands. And then in making the English translation, in a conversation with, uh, with Liz Waters, the, the translator, uh, thank you Liz, um, <laughs> she was very strongly opinioned that it would be good to use the word liberation because the gender equality part is clear from what the book is about and from the use of feminism um, and the men's emancipation would call for other associations, again, other ideas. So, so that's what we do, did, and actually that is also what happened now. The book is also translated in Korean, and they also used Men's Liberation as the main title, uh, and then subtitled also Why Feminism is Good for Men. And, and I still struggle. I find with Emancipator, we said from the beginning, and it's a recurring discussion, a conversation that happens time and again, 
but very clearly for us it is men need to contribute to gender equality, to women's rights, to violence prevention. And there is a lot to win for men in that. Feminism, that's also in the title, feminism comes first, why feminism is good for men. There is a risk in putting the things that men need, what is good for men, at the front. There is a risk, and it happens regularly, that if we talk about men's needs and men's vulnerabilities, that we don't get to the gender justice, gender equality, women's emancipation and women's rights part anymore. So I still struggle with that. Um, I hope the English book will be read in such a way that it is clear that feminism, gender justice, men's contribution to that come first. And I do actually like the fact that men's liberation is also a key part of it because we need to liberate men from the traditional ideas about, about masculinity and the practices connected to that to, to create new solutions for the problems that we are dealing with. In, in Men Engage, we've not been talking about that. I, I mentioned it briefly. Uh, Emancipator was really inspired by the Men Engage Alliance. Um, and in this global network, gender transformative work is key. So we need to transform ideas about men and masculinities. Um, otherwise, the other risk would be, so there is risks at both sides, mm -hmm. is that we reproduce the idea of the male hero, the male rescuer, the, the knight in shining, ar shining armor coming to save the damsels in distress. Um, and that's also not what we need. So it's a thin line balancing between men speaking out and acting up and, and, and engaging in gender equality and doing so in transformative ways that do not reproduce patriarchal ideas about masculinity or patriarchal dynamics and, and, and power structures. Mm -hmm. So I, I felt myself hesitant to use the word men's liberation also because I know there is a history to that and not all the men talking about men's liberation were as pro-feminist as I think they should be or we should all be. So the word men's liberation or the phrase men's liberation is also kind of charged still with the risk of anti-feminism or of traditional masculinity, which then again also is actually what happens in the Netherlands with the term men's emancipation. Because there will be also men saying, oh yeah, but now it's our time. We are actually the ones being repressed. Uh, we suffer. We suffer from feminism gone too far or whatever. So yes, men's emancipation is what we need. Now, in fact, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the work that we do is about the words that we use and about sometimes claiming them, reclaiming them, um, giving them the meaning that we think they need to have. And at the same time, being very cautious and aware of the meanings they may have at larger audiences. But a word can actually almost never stand alone. It also needs 
always will need a context. Yeah, you say um, at one point in, in the book that you see yourself as, I'm quoting here, a human being rather than a man. This seems to be one of the, sort of the key argument that you, you come to yeah, yeah. in the book. So, so why do you say that and, and what are the implications of, of that approach? Because, oh. you know, there's a possibility that, that issues around, around gender, around power, around difference disappear if we're all just humans. How do, how do, you, yeah. how do you construct this argument? I often tend to say I'm, I'm a professional man. Uh, and, and nowadays, when asked in meetings to share my pronouns, um, yesterday, for example, in our open space event, I was facilitating that meeting and I was representing Emancipator. And I put he, him on my pronoun sticker because it's very clear there I want to be there as a man. But... On a personal level, in many ways, I don't identify as a man as it apparently should be in this world. And I feel very often connected with women or non-binary people or other people. So there is a struggle of doing both justice to my, you could almost say, material position in this world with all the privileges I have and my subjective um, experience of my position in the world. And I experience, I, yeah, I want to use the word, I think I, I do experience gender actually as dehumanizing uh, at its core. It is telling me and it's telling people that there is certain things that we should be and certain things that we shouldn't be. And I... I don't experience that this man box represents well enough how I experience myself to be, while at the same time I know that for this world I'm a white, middle class, straight, theoretically university educated man with a Dutch passport in a Western country with all the privileges and power and, and in our terms responsibilities that mm come with that and it is a, it is sometimes really a struggle that I feel I feel it is necessary and important to take my responsibility there and to speak as the the from this material position and to take my responsibility and to speak to men with all these same you could say intersections of privilege I think that is important for the change I want to see in the world. And at the same time, I also want to live the change that I want to see in the world. And so, yeah, maybe sometimes I just feel I'm a bit of a split person there. Or I think it's more real to say I'm a contextual person. I am not always the same one or deep inside I am. But in different contexts, I have different roles. I mean, you said something there about your responsibility for your, you know, your situation, your privilege, and so on. It's important to think about what you what you do with them. How do you feel you hold yourself to to account, and how should men deal with the challenges of engaging in feminism or with women's organisations yeah. um, and issues? Yeah, it's an it's a really important topic. One of the first things I learned. When I engaged myself with feminism, I'm not sure if it was in this uh, 
in the squatters movement with radical feminism or in, in my women's studies period, and they also overlapped in the, in, in the first years. But I was clearly told and I registered and I learned that if I want to do this work as a man, I need to make sure that I have myself checked by feminism, by feminists, by women's rights organizations or feminist organizations. Um, yeah, and, and there's different ways I try to do that, I think. Uh, I want to mention here also that this really has become one of the main topics in the Men Engage Global Alliance, um, because also there we see that sometimes with best of intentions, individuals or organizations or the world at large is reproducing patriarchal patterns and, and giving more space or resources or, or visibility to men uh, than to women or even women's causes. Uh, sometimes with really bad consequences. So this is something that we all need to work on and it's something that I can try to do individually but also that we need to do on a structural level with our networks, with our organizations. So I think from the beginning I've... I think I've done two, two things at least to try to do this as good as I can. I have try to learn the lessons I learned as seriously as I could and to implement them in my life and, and, and to integrate them in my being. So I think in some cases I find myself to be maybe the most critical of the work I do and the work we do, or I try to be that, to, uh, to assure that the work we do is contributing to the things we say they are contributing to and that the ways we are doing them are also doing that. And I've been working together with women and women's organizations and we still do so with Emancipator. Most of our work, I mean, even the fact that we started Emancipator as a, as a standalone organization um, it wasn't just a few men sitting together thinking, oh, now we should start an organization. It was actually a request, a demand that had come from so many women's organizations, women's and feminist initiatives that would say at some point, hey, but we need to do something with men. We need men to be part of the solution. Where are the men? And in the process of establishing the organization, we worked very closely together with several organizations that I had been working together with that we had encountered during the years that we had done projects together with. Uh, we still do our projects and, and our collaborations, I, I would say more with women's organizations, women's rights organizations, than with boys or men's organizations. Actually, there is not many of those. There's many organizations <laughs> working with those targets groups, but not organized as such. And the ones that are explicitly so um, are sometimes more hesitant towards our feminist uh, perspective and, and approach. You mentioned at the start that, uh, sorry, I mentioned at the start that you were very involved in uh, training and uh, coaching and so on. And you, you've done a lot of so-called so men's work and personal growth work as well. What, what do you see as the sort of main challenges in working with men? Um, 
in groups and how, how do you address those yeah thank you for asking that uh, again i want to to include men engage in the conversation men engage has had a interesting internal development uh, in the past few years doing inner work for social change um, where it has become more and more clear that the work we do for social change also needs to include our own ways of working on our own change. We need to be part of the change. And I'm honored to hear that you feel I've been doing a lot of men's work. I feel I've not been doing as much men's work as I maybe would have liked to do or as I think we should have been doing. Emancipator has been working mostly in, in all these years with organizations and professionals. Uh, and not with individual men as like the final target group. But what we have been doing is creating a place, a community for men who want to be part of the change. And we've been working with men as peer educators for our workshops. And also we've been organizing weekends, every yearly weekends for men who want to be part of the change, who want to be part of the solution for ending gender-based violence. And then we do uh, a three-day weekend, two nights, Friday to Sunday, with a group of about 20, 25 men. And then after the weekend, they organize their own activity around engaging boys and men for ending gender-based violence. And in this weekend, we start off on a very personal level, exploring the participants' relations with the topics at hand. Um, we start creating a safe space also to talk about these things because we find we need... It's interesting, we, we had this weekend like a few weeks ago and it's interesting to see what happens when the men come in and they're all kind of isolated, a bit insecure, looking around. Oh, what is this group? Who am I in this group? How do we relate? And I used this year the word melting to, to describe the phenomenon of what happens in the first evening and in the morning of the first day, they melt into a group and, and they get much more soft and open and they, they learn how, in a way, how easy it can be to be more open and communicative and vulnerable with each other and to talk about insecurities and to talk about actually about the things that we men do not only not learn to talk about, but that we actually often actively unlearn to talk about. Feels like for you, the, the process is always really, really important, isn't it? Hmm. You know, I mean, you don't have a sort of the goal I'm going to get to. It's, yeah. it's um, the whole process of doing this work is, is I think revelatory. It is, I think it is very much a process work that we need to do. At least we also need results. But what what I find very often is that people men, women, professionals, organizations, policymakers, they would like a quick fix. Uh, um, they want to push a button and then the problem is solved. It's a very masculine thing also to want problems to be solved uh, because we are problem solvers, that's what we learn. Um, and then they want to go on with their lives again. But the fact is, these lives are part of the problem. The way we've been doing things is part of the problem. So we do not always or only need to start doing new things. We have to start changing the things 
that we do and that start, means changing the way we are doing them and it means to change the way we are in doing them. Yeah, I hope this, this helps. And I would like to give an example from yesterday that was very close for me and that I was struggling, maybe still I'm struggling with. We were having this open space day. The, the topic was more care for less violence, men more human in 2024. And we had about 50, 60 people coming and there was an open agenda and they could put on the agenda what they wanted to talk about. And people had wonderful, great conversations, a lot of interaction, inspiration. Uh, people were happy with the methodology they said at the end of the day. But also some people said, oh, but now what? What are the results? Where is this all leading? What are we going to do? <laughs> and especially in the context that we started off the meeting with already in the team saying, oh, we are doing this, but it seems so futile while the world is, world is on fire and, and children are being bombed and, and everything is going wrong. And what are we doing sitting here talking just a bit about men and gender equality with a group of 50, 60 people? And so the gap between the results of our process and what is actually needed in the world is immense and I've been struggling with that after that and yesterday evening and during the night and and still but I also realized that maybe part of the process is to learn that we as men are not I use the word again that I used for my father omnipotent we cannot solve everything we cannot do everything even though we learned that we are useless if we can't. Uh, I also have the feeling, I should do something about it. We should go in the street now, write our politicians, go there and tell them to stop, whatever. I need to do something. But in many cases in the world, we are actually powerless. And it's not to, to play that down or to say we shouldn't do anything. I, 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 I want to take that a step further. So I do think we need to do things. We need to speak out about against war and against injustice. And we need to work towards uh, uh, peace building and, and equitable structures and, and societies. But we need to do so in maybe new ways, in ways that are gender transformative, that do not reproduce this anxiety of men if they cannot be the hero, if we cannot be the hero, if I cannot be the hero. So yes, the process is important. I do think the results are important. And I think the way that we are working on the results is key. I was thinking, uh, and now the, 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 the war in Palestine, Israel, is really a huge thing that is happening now and that we feel so powerless about and that maybe we should go out and do things about all the time. Um, and I'm still not sure that, that, that sitting with a group of 50, 60 people talking about men and gender equality is then the best contribution we can make at that moment. But if we make it smaller to a topic that was on the agenda yesterday, how can we prevent boys and men to get engaged in, 
extreme right online circles and in Andrew Tate, influencers, etc. If we go to those boys and tell them you shouldn't be doing that because you have to be doing other things, then we will be telling them still that they will need to be in control and powerful and leaders and dominant in, in another way. Mm -hmm. um, but countering the, the narrative of men like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate and others is also that we need to accept that we are sometimes vulnerable and insecure and that we don't know what to do in situations. Because this is the message that they're conveying to boys and young men all the time. The very old traditional ideas about men being tough and strong and dominant and powerful and always successful and, and top dogs. And we are not. So learning to deal with our humanness is I think part an important part of the process mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, well and, and connected to some of the things you were saying um you state in in the book that relationships sexuality intimacy are the domains in which boys and men feel most vulnerable and insecure um so yeah why do you think that is so I think part of what I said in the book is that uh, especially sexuality functions as a container of emotions for many boys and men because we learn to oppress most of our feelings of vulnerability and insecurity and so on we then can feel that oh once we have sex it's at least an outlet for all the emotions that we were not allowed to have actually uh, there is two outlets that are allowed for boys and men this is sex and violence uh, which which are often very much a problematic thing in the combination also. I think, I think many men and boys are actually very alone and lonely and we need relations to others, but we don't know how to, uh, especially not to those that we learn we should want the relations with. Maybe this is too cryptical. Uh, as men, we learn that we should be heterosexual, so we should have relationships with women or with girls. And at the same time, we learn that actually women, girls, femininity are kind of inferior. So, but we are still also then dependent on them. We need, as I said also from my own experience, we need the emotional labor from women and girls uh, for our own mental health and well-being. But we also have learned to look down on that and not to be those qualities. And in relating, things are undefined. We have to use qualities that we have as boys and men, but that we have sometimes actively unlearned and at least very often not actively learned to use, like looking for consent and communicating and feeling and, and adjusting. And, and so it is... Um, it is a less clear arena than building things. <laughs> it's been a joy listening to you, Jens. Um, <laughs> as always, actually, you know. Um, but uh, I think uh, we're coming up to an hour, so we probably need to close. But I wanted to ask you one final thing, which is slightly different, because we, we haven't really talked about the context of 
the Netherlands, you know. Um, and people oh here God. tend to regard <laughs> the Netherlands as being liberal, about being progressive on social matters. But oh how God. do how do debates about masculinity and gender equality play out there? Is, is there something unique or, or you know, <laughs> has what you said covered it, if you like? <laughs> uh, and the riders of that is you've got an election coming up on the 22nd of November, haven't oh you? Oh, my God. So, <laughs> Oh my how, God. how do you think gender is being discussed um, in the run-up to that? Or, or are um, these um, two big questions for the end of a podcast? Oh, I'm not sure I want to talk about this right now. I'll try to tell you why then, you know. So why I don't want to talk about it now is that our Ministry of Foreign Affairs has adopted a feminist foreign policy one and a half year ago. And they organized an international shaping feminist foreign policy conference last week with very interesting and great participants from around the world, many women's organizations from Global South. And it was really unbelievable to see the gap between how our ministers present their ideas about feminist foreign policy and what actually is needed by civil society around the world. So the world asks for system change. This is what civil society needs. Uh, stop fixing the women, fix the system. Um, to quote Mary Wollstonecraft from some centuries ago, um, it is justice, not charity, that is wanting in the world. And mm. our feminist foreign policy seems to tend more towards um, charity than towards justice. Um, I'm trying to be very mild now. Um, <laughs> and, and the second problem is that I had already in advance, we don't have a domestic uh, feminist mm. policy. So we go around the world telling others they have to change, <laughs> but we don't have our own house in order uh, in so many ways. Violence against women, gender pay gap, uh, everyday sexism, hatred against women, politicians and online uh, public figures and so on. Um, LGBT issues, gender issues, abortion rights, being under pressure at least, maybe not as bad in some other countries, but we're not heading in the right direction. So we need system change around the world. We need system change in the Netherlands. And what we really don't need is an agenda that actually says gender equality is a problem for countries in the global south only, for people of color only, for people with migrant backgrounds or refugees. This is the tendency that we've seen growing in the Netherlands in like the past 20 years, maybe longer, but, and it's getting worse. And, and the elections, the upcoming elections will not make things much better. I, I feel like you've taken us back to the start where you described yourself as yeah. idealist, anarchist feminist you know and you've given us a pretty good insight as to <laughs> how you see how you see the world and you know what needs to be done so mm. thank you so much yeah. for well, thank you for having me here and giving me the opportunity to talk about what is so close to my heart all the time thanks
Well, I really enjoyed that that conversation with Jens, Sandy. I thought it, it gave a really great introduction to him as a person, to the work he does, to his book. Um, yeah, what did you pick out from that conversation, which you found particularly interesting? Yeah, I, you know, I always like talking to Jens and, and get so much from from the conversations. But uh, I thought the the sort of personal anecdotes were particularly powerful, really. You know, talking about how he, he's his father was kicking this football and he couldn't see where the hell it had gone, you know, and wasn't he so powerful? And then then also con- contrasting that with being in a workshop later mm-hmm. with him and mm. his father's vulnerability, you know, so mm. so interesting, really. And, and as we were talking, it made me think of my relationships, really, and, you know, how mm. I, I saw my father as this sort of patriarchal, powerful figure of, mm. you know, the sort of 50s, 60s genre of fatherhood, if you like. <laughs> and then... You know, uh, actually, in his case, later on, having um, uh, much more of a relationship with his grandchildren, you know, mm. and mellowing over time, and I think that that is a process mm. that that actually happens quite a lot for particularly men of that era, mm. if you like, um, mm. and it's quite it's quite powerful and it's quite moving to see them opening up, becoming a bit more vulnerable. Well, they are more vulnerable when they're mm. older as well. You know, they're not they're not able to in inverted commas, perform in, in the mm. way that they used to. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so so that sort of, you know, melding of the um, personal and, and also how he links it to the political, I think is really very, very interesting and, and mm. uh, successful, actually. Mm. How about you? No, I really loved that. I really loved how he was willing to actually reflect and open up about his own personal experiences and that how, how that's shaped his political and uh, professional work yeah absolutely um one thing i was thinking about which connects to all of that as well i think doesn't it is about this idea of men's liberation um which he talked about and he does use that language a lot in his book and, and he has he said himself it's a sensitive area isn't it because um yeah i suppose you on the one hand you know for me it feels like well what right do we as men have to talk about liberation when really if we're talking about patriarchy we're talking about men being the kind of the dominant group and that actually pay Feminism is about the liberation of women from that system, right? And but so it feels a bit uncomfortable for us to use that language. Um, but at the same time, yeah, if I reflect on my own experiences, and certainly from the sounds of things, what um, from what Jens was talking about about his life, that yeah, for me personally, feminism has definitely had a liberating impact on me, right? It's it's enabled me to open up so much and to to learn so much more about the world and um, to, to my own place in the world. You know, it has, it's really changed me in that respect. And I do think that is a, a liberating experience. Um, so, yeah, it's just a, a, an interesting one, isn't it, about how can we as men talk about that and what is okay for us to talk about there. And, um, yeah, I'm still not quite sure what I think about that, but I certainly, uh, the way, way Jens talks about it, I think, is powerful, and um, I can certainly see why he uses that that language. Yeah, I'm just thinking about a different point, actually, which is uh, what we were talking about at the end, about uh, the Netherlands, you know, mm. and the fact that they've got this election coming up. I mean, yeah. It sounds like it's really important, actually, what's what's mm. happening there. You know, when you think about mm. what's happening, been happening with sort of populist governments in Slovakia, in Poland, you know, Netherlands, the the, the fall of Mark Rutte, the prime minister, mm. who's, mm. I think he's been prime minister three or four times. Mm. You know, what kind of coalition might result um, mm. from that? So uh, that will also be, you know, an issue to watch. But uh, mm. I think that's probably enough from us, isn't it? Um, we suggest you get hold of the book because it's a great read absolutely absolutely yeah we'll put a link to it in the show notes um yeah and for now thank you so much everybody for listening as always do contact us at nowman at gmail.com if you've got questions
questions or comments we've been receiving some really great feedback recently suggestions for different episodes about things like sexuality pornography yeah so if you've got any comments or feedback don't hesitate to get in touch do uh, follow us on your podcast app if you haven't done so already and yeah recommend us to your friends and colleagues and uh, we'll speak to you again soon but for now take care and thanks again for listening thanks bye 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 now bye